All right. right. About to go live. Slate. Oliver Stone Podcast, episode 10. Woo. (laughs) Cool. All right. Let's get this show on the road. Kalita Spence, I want to thank you right off the bat for flying down here for this. That means a lot. I'm not going to lie. Because (laughs) prior to speaking to you on Instagram, I don't know who you are. You just contacted (laughs) me out of the blue, and I felt very... uh, uh, very honored that you would contact me, especially that we don't know each other. And then you're like, I want to be on your show. And I was like, that's great. This is exactly why I started this podcast. Okay. So I, I really appreciate you coming down and hopefully it wasn't a hassle to come down here no. and you got to have some, some fun. I'm sorry about last night. I know we <laughs> no. tried to do the open mic, No, it was but uh, I don't know what happened. They had this band playing instead. So, unfortunately, so, so with life, I just kind of roll with the punches. Like I used to be a, a big planner. Let's, Get a little closer. Yeah, I used to be a big planner, and lately I just kind of roll with the punches. Um, so it was exciting being here. It's like little Cuba here in Miami, so I felt right at home because yeah. my my family's Cuban and Jamaican, and I had some some really good food, and you know I got to hang out with you. So uh, even just flying in, just rolling with the punches, it was just a really good time. Yeah, you know? I really appreciate the reach out. Mm-hmm. When you first reached yeah. out, I was like, Stephen contacted me. He's like, hey, I have a friend that wants to be on your show. And I was like, yeah. okay, but I don't do things over Zoom. Like, <laughs> I feel like it kind of no, steals I don't. from this. Yeah, I hate, this is what's important. Yeah, I hate that. I like you know? the, the tangibleness of, of meeting in person. I Absolutely. actually hate all things. <laughs> all things that have to do with, like, uh, you know, dating on apps and things of that yeah, nature. Yeah. Originally, um, my sister and I, we started Free Talk BK because we wanted a way for people who were artists to meet organically in person because we noticed... During COVID, everything was kind of virtual, virtual, virtual. And we were like, let's make a way for people to kind of get out of that virtual realm and and come in person. So we, we had a huge backyard in Brooklyn. So we did the dividers. We, we were up to code and everything. And we did an event, you know, um, you know in covid after covid whatever you want to call it during the covid ever uh with people in person and it was liberating and freeing you know is that so, when you started B- free bk yeah free, free talk, talk sorry free talk bk was started uh around the time of covid yeah mm-hmm. So, you know, we started it because I wanted to kind of get back to my roots of poetry and doing spoken word. Um, you know, I started spoken word by doing stages like the the Bowery Poetry Club or the New Yorican um, in about 2009, you know, because mm-hmm. they've been around for a while. And since then, things have shifted and changed with those things. But, you know, I told my sister, I was like, I want to gather people out and I want to listen to their poetry. I want to, like, make a platform for people to come out and for them to to be, you know, just exalted in, in whatever way they can be you know mm-hmm. yeah so that's where free talk bk came from and uh free talk is like you could just talk freely here you mm-hmm. could talk freely about whatever you're going through you could talk freely about whatever life brings you and there's no judgment it's a judgment free zone and then bk stood for two things my sister's name is balanya my name's kalitha or brooklyn because we were we grew up in brooklyn so gotcha yeah okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you said you picked up poetry again did you have stopped when did you start writing like, um, when did so poetry I, become a big part of your life so i started writing poetry when i was 13 years old 
And I think a pinnacle thing in my writing poetry was uh, we read the book for the first time in school, uh, Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And there was such uh, eloquence in her speech when I, I looked her up and I started to watch videos on her and, and when I started to read her poetry about phenomenal woman, phenomenally, that's me, you know, and, and there was such eloquence and there was such beauty in it um, that I started to write and my, I showed my eighth grade teacher at the time, her name was Miss McIntyre, and I showed it to her and she said, this is brilliant. And she gave me a book with like some African, uh, it was like some African print on it and stuff. And it, it was almost like me walking into myself because in eighth grade, I didn't know anything about being a first generation American. I just knew my mom uh, called people Yankees. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we didn't go out for fast food. We ate like cooked food at home all the time. And, and you know, um, that she was just very, a very proud Jamaican uh, Caribbean woman. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, stepping into the Afrocentric roots by just being given that book or stepping into those roots, uh, you know, was accessed through my poetry. And I started at 13. So. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming you just continued to write throughout your entire teenage years. Yeah, I did. Whatever, whatever it was, whatever I needed healing on, I, I poured it into my writing. Okay. So if there was ever a moment where I felt, um, pain, anxiety, loss. So it first started out with me feeling negative feelings and that's what I wrote about. And then eventually it, it filtered into, Hey, I want to write even when I'm happy. You know, I want to sure. write about happy feelings and, you know, this is what makes me feel happy. So I'm going to write about this and poetry doesn't always have to rhyme, but I like to rhyme, you know, and I like repetition because I think that sometimes, you know, you have to repeat stuff for it to really sink into your soul. Sure. I feel like poetry and writing is a way for people to open up their soul, for them to kind of bear it all and, and for you to embrace that. You Did know? you also keep a journal? <laughs> yeah, I had journals, too. I had a lot of journals. I mean, I think I have them in my garage. It takes a Never go boxes. back and read them? I do. I do. When I was, um, so, so I recently relocated from Brooklyn, uh, New York, to North Carolina. I still go back to Brooklyn because we still, you know, we have property in New York, and, and we have tons of family and friends there. But I recently relocated, you know, for, for me and my boys, we needed some more grounding. But long story short, as I packed up my things, I found a, I found a journal from when I was 21 years old. And in this journal, there's a lot of mass manifestation happening. I said, you know, I want this and I want that and I want this and I want that. And not just manifestation. It was where I was at at the time. Um, you know, I was a, a youth group leader <clears throat> and at the time, I also, you know, I was working like four jobs to pay for college. I worked security at the school. Uh, I did like a camp and I worked for Abercrombie and Fitch as well. How did um, you get the time to do four jobs? I know and still keep like a 4.0 average. Um, so how That's did I wild. get... 4.0? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen higher so, than 2.7 in mine. <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, so, so really, I don't know how... I, 
I did that, to be honest with you. And I think it went down towards the end, like to a 3.8, 3.9. But I don't know how I did that. But it was like being incredibly structured, right? So it's like, okay, I worked my security job on the weekends in Abercrombie on the weekends. I worked during the week at the camp. I did my classes during the day. And then I just like blocked out time to do schoolwork, right? Right. And, and it's just things you just take it one step at a time. What were you studying at the time you were in school? Uh, so I was studying theology. So I didn't quite yet fall into wanting to be a teacher. And I had this incredible experience with God when I was 13. You know, my family wasn't Christian. If anything, uh, my wasn't. Was. They weren't. They, they weren't. weren't. Okay. No, my mom practiced Santeria. So, so what does that, that mean? Uh, Santeria. Like, is that Catholic? No, it, it's a type of Catholicism that's also mixed with brujaria. It's also mixed with a little bit of witchcraft and stuff like that. So, is this you know, a Jamaican thing? It's not. It's actually very Cuban. And so your mom's Cuban? My mom is Cuban and Jamaican. Also, uh, what's your, your dad was? My dad is also Cuban and Jamaican. So Get they are both they are both <laughs> Cuban and Jamaican. I have those roots on both sides. Um, and for my mom, uh, you know, when it comes to like her Cuban side, it was really just my, my grandfather. And he moved to Jamaica from Cuba to kind of like work and start a new life. And he never really uh, he never really spoke Spanish to his children and his children. They identified as Jamaican. It wasn't until my grandmother passed away in my my I want to say my mid 20s that I went to Jamaica. I spent some time there and I started to sit and talk to my grandfather <laughs> and he had all of these stories. And then mm -hmm. I realized, oh, shoot, we're Cuban. Like, you know what I mean? And I knew like my my mom had always said, yeah, my dad, he's Cuban and my uncle this and my grandfather's name is Selvin. You know, it's a, a very Hispanic name. So I knew all of that, but it wasn't until I went there and I started to listen to his stories about when he came to Jamaica, about his brother and him and how life was in Cuba. And then finally in 2007, I got a chance to visit Cuba and I, I went and I tried to look up his family, the extended version, but I was only there for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get a chance to really sit and meet with them. But that is where I saw a lot of the things that my mom did in our household and the things that, that she made for dinner or the things that she said or her practices, that's where I, I realized that this is very Cuban. Like, and then we circle back to Santeria. Santeria is like uh, basically the, the religion of the nation in Cuba. You see women walking around all in white because that's like, that's their year that they're dedicating to, to practice and stuff. Mm. And I don't know the depths of it or much about it. Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, what, what, what entire that year what are they not doing in that year are they I not eating meat I, I, or they're what? i honestly don't know i okay. wish i could learn more about it but when i went there they kind of explained little things to me like i'm uh into music and i'm into drums i was playing drums at the time and uh i bought a drum that they use in the spiritual circles and they explained to me um just the details behind like the fact that they wear white the fact that um you know they dedicate certain time to, to certain things. Um, and I thought it was really cool. I, I just thought it was cool to kind of see that culture. Uh, fast forward to New York, my mom living in New York, she's, um, she, she burns candles. She, you know, if someone's sick or something, she burns a candle and stuff for them. And she puts and she salt prays. around the house. Um, I don't, I've never my seen mom her does put that. salt. She puts salt around the house for bad spirits, like yeah. sea salt or something so by I've, the windows. I've never by the seen of her. The door. <laughs> 
that's funny. I've never seen her salt uh, do salt, but she did something. It was called Florida water or something like that. And um, she would burn candles and she knows the meanings behind different saints and stuff. So when I studied theology, it was very separate from that. It was more or less, um, you know, I, I became like a, a born again Christian when I was 13. And now I would say I'm more spiritual, not religious, not attaching myself to any form Deity or something, not re- attaching myself to uh, born again Christians because you know they've done a lot to hurt a lot of people over time, and I don't want to attach myself to that, but I do want to attach myself to the belief in Jesus mm-hmm. and the belief in God and the belief mm-hmm. that that's what carries me through my my hard time. Mm-hmm. So, at the time I was studying theology, I, I left school studying theology. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I did a few missions trips in pockets. I went to Paraguay. Um, you know, Barbados, Jamaica, and, and spent time with with people living in poverty, helped mm-hmm. to build schools in certain places. And it really was a culture shock for me because I didn't know about child prostitution. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I just grew up in America. So <clears throat> it was a culture shock seeing things like that. And I would say that's where my heart for children developed. And that's where I knew when I came back to the States, I was like, I want to do something to to educate kids, to teach kids. I want to work with kids, you know, whereas before it was like I was kind of like floating. I was like, you know, I want to learn more about theology because I want to learn about this thing that I'm believing in. So I learned like the historical basis behind like Christianity and all those things. But then after going on those trips and kind of going to many places in the world, um, you know, and seeing people live impoverished, uh, it brought me to a point where I said, I don't know that I could live in another country right now. Um, but if I'm in my own country, I want to help people in my country. How can sure. I do that? Mm-hmm. And I joined a program called the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. And that's how I Prior became to a te- teaching. Yeah, yeah. So they took my bachelor's degree in theology. I joined the program and they paid for my master's to become a teacher. So and while I was getting my master's, I taught I taught in the inner city. So, you know, while learning how to teach, I also was able to get hands on experience teaching. I don't even know if the program still exists, but I want to say it was life changing. And also, like, it's such a great opportunity for people like me who they're studying in school and they're just getting a four-year degree in something and then they get out of school and they know they want to go a different career path but not exactly, they don't know how, so. Gotcha. So explain to me what you study when you're in theology. Like, what what, what is the basis yeah. of that? Because I have no idea what that is. So what we studied was uh, we had a class on different religions, world religions. So, so it's more religious-based theology? Uh, theology is religious based. It was the, the school that I went to was very religious, um, almost cultish at times. You know, when I think back on the things that, that kind of happened, that's why I said, I don't really associate myself with it anymore. Um, but what I would say is that what I learned from it is about other religions and stuff like, uh, I, I remember taking a class where the uh, the person who taught the class said, okay, I want you to visit a mosque. I want you to visit, you know, uh, a Jewish temple. I want you to go to these different places, and I want you to, to learn 
about these things and learn what's similar and what's different. And I want to challenge you that, you know, you're not going to start believing in this just because you're in this place. I want to challenge you to open your mind and see about these different things. And I noticed that there was a strong similarity between all of them. I noticed there was a strong similarity between all of them, but that, not just that. I also <clears throat> realized that what I believed was was rooted in Judaism, Judaism, you know, because it's called Judeo-Christian. So, I mean, it was good because I'm like a historical buff. I love mm-hmm. history. <laughs> so it also brought me to the point where I could understand, OK, well, how did this belief system get here? And where I could go all the way to Egypt and say, oh, wow, the account of this is written in Egyptian uh, pyramids on the walls. Like they actually have an account of the flood. They have this account in several different places in in history and in ancient history. Wow, this is interesting. You know, um, so I think I took away mostly the historical aspect of it. Um, And and what I also wanted to do is there were so many people, like I became a Christian at 13, and from 13 to the time I went off to college, you know, um, at, at 20, there were so many people who didn't read the Bible like they'd be like, oh, doesn't church mean this? Or it's so many rules. I just want to live my life. There were mm-hmm. so many people that didn't read the Bible and didn't understand certain things in it that I was just kind of tired of getting those interpretations of who God was. And I wanted to go and, and find out for myself and develop my own relationship and my own like spirituality of, of who God is to me because I'm a unique, dynamic person, and I don't fit the cookie-cutter box of what ordained Christians are. Or... So let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in your entire studies of theology and, and being the history buff you are, none of that ever challenged your beliefs in Christianity? You never felt like you were like, because, you're, because I'm assuming you're, you're studying the, um, the uh, what's it called, the beginnings of how some of these started, these religions. So obviously you, you find out that they're written by man or something like that. They never questioned that maybe so, God doesn't exist or... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be straightforward with you. There are definitely times that it challenged my belief, but that's where that personal relationship comes in, right? Mm-hmm. I had, when I became a Christian at 13, I had a personal experience with God. You know how people talk about they have these God encounters? Sure. Like, I'm not going to say I saw anything. I'm not going to say that, you know, I levitate. It, it wasn't anything like that. It was just I overheard a conversation, and then later on I was at home, and that conversation came back to mind, and I felt a strong presence of God. And I said, you know, I want to know if there is a higher power out there, if there is a God out there. I want to know what and who that God is. Please show me how. And then my path opened before me and it opened up to this path that I followed. Which is Christianity? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so when you're 13 years old and you're, you, you have this experience, your mom obviously has she her She thought own. I was crazy. She was like, stop reading the Bible. You're going crazy right now. <laughs> no, really? She thought I was crazy. My parents, so wait, what did, the, my what did your mom read? My family were basically as, the pagan. Book? So they read Psalms. Like in Santeria, you mostly read Psalms. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. You, you have a very water. I don't want to say that because I don't know enough about it. It, but 
from what I saw my mom doing, she burnt candles, she read the Psalms, and she believed in God and prayed. But it wasn't anything like what I was doing where I was reading from Genesis to Revelation. You know what I mean? So she's sitting there. She's like, you're reading the Bible. You should be going out partying. Like, what are you doing? So uh, she thought I was going crazy. And she's like, you know, I had a friend that went crazy. She read too much of the Bible. And, and you know, so That's she... the first time I'm, I'm hearing, like, so, you go crazy from reading the Bible. Yeah, so, so it, it's just, you know... So she she really honestly thought she was coming from a good place. And she was just kind of like, I don't believe in this. And later on, I found out that my grandparents were Christian. We weren't raised Christian at all. We were mm-hmm. basically pagans who, who practiced Santeria. I remember as young as five years old doing like some type of blood coverment. You know what I mean? And I don't even remember the practice of it, but it was like something where they, they stick your finger, you leave your blood and and they put a pouch on the inside of your clothes for protection or something. I don't even know what happened, you know, but these are the practices that, you know, I I remember seeing, or we had, we had a woman that was very close to my family. She was like my grandmother. I would stand in the kitchen and watch her like read cards and give people like, it wasn't tarot cards. It was just regular playing cards. She would, I would sit in the kitchen. Like the king of diamonds. Yeah, 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 yeah. She would turn it over and she would tell people about their lives. Right. And I would sit there in the kitchen at five years old. She used to cook uh, Spanish food for me. <laughs> she used to talk to me in Spanish. And I would sit there. My mom, she started out because when she left my dad, she left an abusive relationship. And she got this job working with this woman cleaning her house. And she treated me like her daughter. Like, she treated me like her grandchild. And she always said, like, you're a seer. You know, you have the same, like, you have the same ability as what I have, you know, and she'd sit me there and she'd read people and she'd cook food for me. And, you know, that's where I got the basis, I'd say, of of speaking Spanish, even mm-hmm. though my family was Cuban. I didn't learn from my grandmother and my grandfather. I they learned it English. from this. Yeah, yeah. They spoke English. My grandfather spoke Spanish if if he was around his brother, maybe my mom said. But I never experienced it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> But I learned it from this woman, Raquel, her and her daughter. You know, they would speak Spanish all the time to me. She loved telenovelas. <laughs> so that was always on the screen. And and I spent, you know, most of my time there. I'd go to work with my mom because she allowed my mom to bring her me to work with her. So, mm-hmm. gotcha. yeah. Yeah. And you said what ta- What was your mom doing at the time? She was cleaning that woman's house. She was studying oh, okay. to be a nurse. I got it. Okay. I, I, okay. So I she was studying to be a nurse. And while in nursing school, she was cleaning this woman's house, you know? Got so. it. Understood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so your mom leaves your dad, abusive relationship. Yeah. But they're both living in New York. Yeah. So he that was a crazy situation. So I was two when my mom left my dad. And I think over the years, I heard snippets of, like, what actually happened, right? And and it makes sense because, like, as I became this year, uh, age 40, I started reading about attachment styles and things of that nature. So it's kind of like everything that I learned up until age 40 about my dad and the relationship he had with my mom, it made sense what my attachment styles were. And, and I'll circle back to that a little bit later. But my dad was highly abusive, like to the point where it, it could be a lifetime TV special. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, some examples are my mother has a slash on her face 
uh, he, he cut her with a knife and my brothers were against the door trying to hold him back. They were all, they were all 10. Wait, so how old are your brothers? So my oldest brother, so I have a, a older, older brother from a, my dad was with a different woman. Okay. So when I speak of my oldest brother, I'm talking about the, the children that he had with Without my mom. Without your mom. With, with, with my your mom. mom. Okay. Yeah. So my oldest brother, Kareth, uh, both my older brothers are named Kareth. And uh, they found out about each other because they were in the same kindergarten class. But um, that's another story. But my oldest brother, Kareth, is 10 years older than me. Then uh, my brother, Nate, is five years older than me. And my brother, Donovan, is about seven years older than me. So okay, so you're I the last of, of three boys. Three boys, gotcha. yeah. And they thought I was going to be a boy. But um, long story short, so, you know, they tell me my brothers, you know, my brother Donovan, I sat with him. And he told me a story of the fact that the three of them were holding the door and they were all like 10 and under so that he wouldn't come in and, and like hurt my mom. Sure. And, um, you know, she she got her tooth knocked out while she was holding my little brother in in her hand because he thought she was cheating. She went to Jamaica to visit her sister, you know, and to show her parents uh, my brother Nate. And then she came back from Jamaica, and as soon as uh, she opened the door, he, like, punched her in the face. That's like, wild. those are two examples of the type of monster he was, right? Um, so, and, and my brothers and I, you know, there's a poem in my, my book, Redemption Songs, where it's like, um, you know, while riding through the old neighborhood, I remember, um, you know, and it says, like, we, we replace those memories. We regurgitate proper enunciations for our unurban, suburban patrons. Louis Vuitton and Fendi cover childhood wounds, lock the memories in an asylum as we continue to move. So, so that whole line right there is just the childhood memories. Mm. Like, you, you lock those memories up. My brothers are all very successful. You know, you know they, they wear nice clothes, um, name brand clothes. They, they own their own properties and things of that nature. But that money and that stuff, it's just a covering maybe for us for all of the things that happen, it's a way for us to move forward. That highly successful nature where you have achievements under your belt, it's a way for you to move forward and just kind of put that past behind you because you can't live in it, you can't perpetuate it. Sure. Let's like toss off that faulty crown and not have mm -hmm. it passed down again. Um, but yeah, so my mom left my father, and the reason why I bring up all of that is because we essentially were in hiding, like she hid from him. She gave no phone number to any of his family members. She gave nothing. How did nothing. she get away? If, if, um, if it was so hard to, so did so, she just pack up and leave so there, and just didn't say anything? So I was only two, so I don't know, right? But there are two stories, right? So when I finally reconciled with my dad at twenty-one. Right. I met him for the first time at 21. Uh, I asked him all these hard questions because I'm like, you know, what's going on? And up until then, you know, you don't air your dirty laundry. No one really specifically told me anything um, up until 21 years old. I just knew he was a bad man by conversations I overheard. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I asked him questions about what happened. And my brother, Nate. One day he was uh, beating my mom up and my brother Nate went to the next door neighbor's house and called the police at five years old. Wow. And, um, you know, the police came and everything. They were living in Jersey at the time. The police came out and, um, you know, he said, I, I have to go because I'm going to kill this woman. Like, and that's, that's the way crazy. that's the way that he, he tells that? it. He said it to, to me. To the police? Oh, he said it to me. Gotcha. Gotcha. He said it to me because I asked him, you know. 
tell me about these things like you know no one's told me anything and I want to hear from your mouth like you know so my my husband at the time and myself we took we took a trip this is years later too um uh to Fort Lauderdale we took a road trip and my dad came with me and I asked him all these questions like really hard questions on the drive yeah and I'm like you know why did you do it you know where did this come from and he said he his dad was abusive towards his mom and he remembers the day that he stood up for his mom. He was 13. And uh, he, he grabbed his dad's hand. And he said it was just what he saw when he was growing up. You know, that's just right. something he saw. And then I started to ask him questions about, about my mom. And he says it that that is the day that he had to leave. But, you know, I've heard different stories where he, he almost killed us as a family. Right. And my brother, Kareth, had to, like, come and, like, remove a knife from his hand and wrestle him from it. You know, so I've heard different like all stories. all around 10 years old. 10 years old, man. He's a Buffalo soldier, that man. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all, like, and I write about it in my book, um, The Strength to Love, as well. I wrote uh a poem about my mom the fact that she enlisted for a war that she she didn't even know what she was signing up for and by got, war you mean that marriage yeah yeah gotcha so, that is crazy yeah yeah so these are the things and you know that that lead into attachment styles right so sure. you know two years old my dad is gone my mom never got you know caribbean people we don't get counseling no yeah. <laughs> i don't want to say we because i believe like in uh, it it's, it's like it's frowned upon yeah 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 like, we're it's okay like, we, we have problems it's like, like what are you else. crazy you know loca so 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 either way my mom went through all of that over a decade of marriage to a monster right so she went through all of that and never got counseling for it. So, of course, there's some emotional disturbance and things of that nature. Sure. She's raising us and, and she does the best she can. She's phenomenal. Right. She worked her way through nursing school, bought a house for us to live in on Long Island. We moved out of Brooklyn, did a great job raising us. Um, so, you know, but still has that emotional disturbance and that trauma that she's working through. And we all see it. We mm-hmm. grow up in that. In addition, I have that whole, whether I like to admit it or not, that abandonment from, from my father. So my attachment style is anxious attachment. You know what I mean? And, and even like maybe even a little bit avoidant in the beginning. And that led me to the poem, what, you know, New World, because... It, it talks about the fact that when I say the lo- words I love you, they are hollow. They are the absent father and the distant mother's touch that I long for. Mm. You know, um, these are the things. This is what I knew of I love you. You know, and I, I had to create a new language for myself where I love you meant something else. It, it was more action-based rather than this word that everyone betrayed. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I've ever met betrayed. So, you know... I think um, as I work through, like I spent maybe a good year and a half, two years recently working through my anxious attachment style, working through the fact that I am enough. And, and that is what birthed this book, The Strength to Love. And, and what really catapulted me into it is, you know, the death of my husband and me, you know, feeling like, you know, I was ill-equipped for that marriage. I was ill-equipped to, to and, and very naive to think my love would love away mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, or if I prayed enough, it, it would, it would um, 
it would change the atmosphere. Mm. The only way a person can change is they have to want to change. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, that's pretty much it. But I went through that. I went through that whole process after my husband died because at that point it was like, I want to be better for my boys. I want to be better for myself. I want to be better. I want my last 40, you know, as human beings, we get about 80 years on this planet in I don't America. Know, I'm living to 150. I'm going to live longer too. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, Elon Musk will create something so we can live longer. <laughs> that guy wants to die on Mars. I don't think I he's trying to make us live any longer. <laughs> he's trying to get us over he's there. He's like, this planet's dying. No. But, but, but long story short, like I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to live another 40 years, it's going to be healed it's not going to be wrapped up in this uh you know in this me not even knowing that i'm feeling these things Mm -hmm. me not even knowing my attachment styles my style of boundaries my style of anything i'm going to start with self-love so that i can go ahead and love my boys better so as men and they're very latin men you know they're cuban jamaican italian and french so they have a lot of that machismo that they're just born into it's generational so i want to teach them as men you can cry you can you can express yourself you have a voice right and and you can love yourself you can take a step back and say i need to take a step back because i need to process what is happening i feel like unfortunately even growing up in brooklyn unfortunately men of color and i say all colors because it's not just black men it's not just, it's men of color They've been told, you have to be quiet. If you're too loud, you're aggressive. Mm -hmm. You have to step back and shrink back. You cannot be your powerful, kingly self. And in order for me to, you know, I became a single parent overnight. In order for me to impart that power into my boys... I needed to find it somewhere. You know, I was raised by my mom who had the the self-esteem beaten out of her. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's no father figure. You know, what I did have of a father figure was my stepdad, but he was there for a short while because broken people hurt people and, and people break up. They leave, you right. know. It's so, too much to bear, right? Exactly. It's too, much, it's too much to bear. So, you know, I, I sat back and I, I said to myself, my, my life is rooted in prayer. So I sat back and I prayed and I fasted for 40 days, right? I prayed and I fasted for 40 pre- days. This is post? Post-death of my husband. Okay. I said, you know, I buried him. Uh, you know, we did an open casket funeral. I buried him, did the cremation, you know, all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I sat back and I said to myself, okay, what am I going to do now? And it was a few months later. It wasn't until about, I know the exact date, June 28th. It wasn't until June 28th of 2022 that I said, I'm going to start a fast today. And he died in April and it took me a few months to really come to myself and wake up from my stupor. And I said, I'm going to do, I'm going to start a fast today and I'm going to fast for 40 days and I'm going to write every day. I'm going to write whatever God brings to my mind. When I pray, when I meditate, whatever comes to my mind, I'm going to write it down. And I'm going to start to post it. And I started posting it on Free Talk BK, which was, uh, you know, it's a platform for other poets. I never made it as a platform for myself, you know. So I started my healing journey with just that. Then I started to think about certain 
tendencies and stuff that I have because at times I didn't feel like enough. And if someone ever rejected me, it made me want to be with that person more. And I was like, this is madness. Why is that? Right. And it's because of that attachment style. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I bought a book on attachments and attachment styles and I bought a book on boundaries and I started to read through the books I I read through many different books I started to watch podcasts and videos on healing and then I started to write and as the days went on the weight lifted and the freedom came to my mind and I started to go on hikes with the boys and we started to just live a very mundane life we moved to um I still owned the house in Brooklyn and we owned a house in uh Pennsylvania as well because you know we were very successful um but not by (laughs) success is not by what you have but by the world's means you know what I mean sure yeah so because success for me is to to live a peaceful life and and to have not necessarily have Lamborghinis exactly to have love in your (laughs) life to have family and to live at peace right that's success for me that's not Miami yeah Miami (laughs) success is that Rolex (laughs) that that Supermodel girlfriend. So I like that you said that. It's because of people's underlying issues, though, right? Yeah. 100%. This is going to make me. I think me... that all boils down to some type of insecurity. Yeah. And how people see you. Yeah. It's like you're more worried about how people see you than how you represent yourself. Exactly. Louis Vuitton and Fendi cover childhood wounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just yeah, it's like the back. materialistic things. Like it's like yeah. it's okay you were hurting. Here's a Lambo, yeah. feel better. Exactly. <laughs> so so that's pretty much that's pretty much it, right? So fast forward, taking my kids and and moving, we we needed something different. We chose we chose three places. We visited uh, two of the three places. We chose either Texas. We wanted to look at Austin. We looked at Charlotte, North Carolina, and we wanted maybe possibly Atlanta. And my kids, we went to uh, Austin. They liked it, but they were like, you know, it's something off. Because they're very spiritual, too, you know. And then uh, we went to North Carolina, and we were grounded right away. It was to the point where I had to go back home and pack up our house. And they were like, we're not leaving. (laughs) You know what I mean? I went back home. I packed up our houses, and I put everything for sale and and went back to North Carolina. We we found the house there, and we've been there ever since. and it's very grounding. And I continued to write. This is all in the 40-day period where all of these things Why 40 start. days? Is, does that have to do um, with the Jesus being in the desert for 40 days? Didn't it has do to a do. a 40-day stint as yeah, well? Yeah, it has to do with everything being 40. Moses was in the desert for 40 days, right? Moses, Moses killed. I thought it was Jesus. Yeah. Did Jesus go to the desert Jesus also? went to the desert too. So what is Moses, with the desert? I know. Is it because they were in North Africa it's, it's or something? It's a spiritual. Yeah, it's because of that, but it's also a spiritual. <laughs> they were in Brazil. It'd be the rainforest. I know. I know. Me and Jesus went to the rainforest. Like, you know, but I think it's a spiritual a spiritual thing, right? When you're in that spiritual desert of your life. And for me, I was in a desert. I was dry. I was like, man, my, my husband died and I lost other things. I lost other relationships as well. Um, a very important relationship. And, and in losing that relationship in, in losing my husband and in losing a lot of things, it made me feel like I still have my kids. I still have my life. Right. hundred percent. 
let me let me like and you have their life yeah let me make our lives better <laughs> like you know so i looked the best places to raise your kids and and that's how i got these three states and you know I, i'm just trying to handle everything because i don't want to be another product of the community another single sure, mom sure, black yeah. single mom so anyway i digress to say my kids and i we moved there and i i set up structures like cooking dinner every night we eat together we talk Right. Mm -hmm. We go to therapy. We did uh, remote therapy because I wanted them to have consistency. So we did everything remote. It started remote in New York and it continued remote in uh, Charlotte. So do therapy, eat good food, go on hikes every day, take the dogs for walk and go on hikes. That's what we had to do in order to stay grounded. And that's still our routine today. You know, my nephew came to live with me. Um, and he, he lives with us and we eat dinner. We, we have a small dessert and we go on a walk as a family and we talk and, you know, we had to start new traditions and new routines because I needed to get them away from, you know, that, that stigmatism of my dad committed suicide, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how my husband died. We didn't even go into that, but, um, I needed to get them away from, from why did he leave us? Mm -hmm. Why did he do that? Why mama? Because they call me Mamo because my husband was French. So okay. they call me the French word for mom. And and I don't have the answers, you know, is what I tell it's them. It's a tough question to answer when you don't know, too. And Yeah, and he didn't even so leave a note. And... He didn't even leave a note, you know. And you have two beautiful boys. You leave. You take your own life. I understand, too, because he was in a lot of pain. And I, I as a Caribbean woman, as a black woman, you take on a lot for your man, you know. Right. You're told you have to be that ride or die and stick by their side no matter what. I swallowed myself whole. I became less. So you're saying you lost yourself in the relationship as well, right? Swallowed myself whole. There was no me. There was only him and the kids. To the point where, you know, I stopped writing. I didn't write for years, you know? Wow. Um, and, and all it was was just working. And at times I felt like a slave. To did my lifestyle. Like, did you feel like your relationship with your husband reflected your relationship with your mom and dad? Um, Even though maybe I'm, I'm not sure. If it he was wasn't abusive. physically. Right. He wasn't physically abusive. Sure, um, but I'm talking about the dynamic so I of do feeling think little, so. uh, not feeling like you're relevant. I do think so, and I think that I chose the way. I think that in the beginning it was like a, a love story, a fairy tale love story. I was doing spoken word. Our eyes met. It felt like we knew each other before. What does that mean you were doing spoken word? Uh, were... So I was on stage doing performing spoken word, performing poetry. Okay, got it. And like he an was open there. mic or something? It wasn't an open mic. I opened for an event that was like a competition, a rap competition. He was there because he had moved from France to uh, work with uh, a guy, I believe his name was Basie Bob Bookman. And um, he oh, was... he great name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he was... Uh, creating beats and stuff like he he worked with some big names and created beats and stuff and he was here to see new rap talent and you know i was there with a group of friends we saw each other and then he came over and this is a smooth move he bought the whole table of friends drinks because <laughs> he knew that he wanted to uh sit with me but he knew he had to get through my artillery um <laughs> either Your way entourage. yeah my entourage <laughs> Um, but either way, you know, that's how we met. I felt like, you know, we got engaged in Central Park, just all these fairy tale things, you know. Um, and because of my spiritual foundation, I waited till marriage till I did anything 
sexual or intimate and you know what that, year did you get married i, I mean, was 27 man fast that it, wasn't man. your that wasn't your only <laughs> relationship though i'm assuming no. no it wasn't i had a relationships before that you know what i mean but in those relationships i had before that they were also spiritual people who were also waiting but there was no there had to have been sexual drive at one point. Like, at one point, you kind of oh want to be there, intimate. There's always sex drive. There so was always heavy... So what was impeding heavy... that? Is religion, like, you wanted to make sure you were married to the person before so committing? I think, I think what impeded that is definitely the, the aspect of I knew that I loved very deeply. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I felt with myself, I felt like I had relationships where we held hands and we kissed and we cuddled and we... we intimate we were intimate mentally and i point to this because our minds were intertwined right sure so we were intimate mentally and i felt like if i added anything more physical onto that i personally as someone who loves deeply couldn't handle it you know for me i i took a while to warm up to people because of my attachment style but once i warmed up to them and once i open up to them that's it i love them you know so um you know Going back to my husband, that's what happened with him. You know, it took me a while to warm up with him. Um, I thought he was just, you know, I thought he was just looking for one thing. So I ended up not talking to him and we became friends. And then after a while and I got to know him that he's a phenomenal musician, that he's into the arts like I am. You know, we ended up having a lot in common. And, you know, I have a lot of dreams sometimes, like physical dreams, like sleep at night, have those dreams. I had a dream one night that we were walking through Washington Square Park and we were pushing my son Mateo in a stroller. And this is before we got married or whatever. And I told him about the dream and it was twofold, right? Because in having this attachment style, my my goal was to push somebody away who wasn't really serious with serious intentions. And I told him about the dream, and I remember him saying, no, that's where we're going. Isn't that where we're going here? <laughs> like, you know. And I'm here I, for the long haul. Yeah, exactly. And, and finally, I was like, oh, wow, like, there's somebody who's actually in it for the long haul. You know what I mean? And then, like, you know, 10 months later, we're engaged. And then. 10 months after you started dating. Yeah, so yeah. So how long were you friends before that? We were friends not long, maybe four to six months Okay. Before that. And then, you know, so 16 months, maybe a little bit lo- lo- uh, less than that. feel like that was enough so, time to get to know somebody? So I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say no, right? Because of what I went through in our marriage, like definitely no, because I, w- I wouldn't know that he had mental ill. I would have known if we were together longer, right? Sure. Um, and once you're married, like you're already in it. You got yeah. kids. It's hard you know, to leave. Yeah, especially with kids, a house, all these responsibilities. Um, so I would say I would say yes in the aspect where I felt like I knew him and I felt like we would show up for each other and he knew me. But knowing the aspect where, um, you know, maybe the first year of our marriage, I think when I was first pregnant with our son, is where I experienced him having his first manic episode threatening to throw himself out the window you know what i mean why and why do you um, feel like he was he had a bad day at work he had a bad day at work it was always like some type of alcohol at the time he worked at a place called uh, cafe chorbon and he was a manager there and his boss was incredibly abusive like and and you know people who experience abuse in their lifestyle i think that growing up i can't speak to it right because i i wasn't there in his childhood but growing up he did talk about uh, verbal abuse, you know, 
and that was a thing with him and his dad. And um, I think he gravitated towards situations where that was the case. So his boss was incredibly verbally abusive and he came home and he was, you know, he had been drinking because I could smell it. And then I was trying to um, see what happened. And as he explained what happened, he's like, I don't want to do this. I want to kill myself. And I'm like, you have me and like your unborn child. Like, what are we talking about? And then I just began to pray, you know, and I don't know how he ended up not doing anything to himself. Like he left, he went for a walk, came back at like 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning, you know. And I remember calling my friend Kim. She was my best friend at the time. And she's still one of my closest friends. She's like my youngest is uh, godmother. But I remember calling her and she said that, you know, she reminded me of it after he passed away because I was blaming myself for a lot of things. And she said, no, Kalitha, remember the first year of marriage you called me and you were locked in like you were locked in a room and you were calling me whispering, saying that you think he's going to kill himself. You know, she said, I remember it from the beginning. That was a thing. You know, and I was I was so surprised that she brought that memory back to me. And I was like, yeah, oh, my God, I forgot about that. So from there, that happens, and then it didn't happen again for a long time. So I'm thinking, okay, everything's cool. Maybe it was a little bit of alcohol in his system. But sure enough, like once a year, then twice a year, then three times a year, it'd be these different manic episodes, right? All all ending with him wanting to kill himself. Um, Not necessarily. All ending with me being... uh, the fault for all of his problems or ending with him breaking something ending him with him leaving the house in a fit of rage was he always drunk at the time every um, time when those things would happen was he drinking so there would always be some type of drinking um there would always be like i think he wasn't an alcoholic but um there would always be like, I think that gin would really have like some type of chemical reaction and set him off. That was something that he drank. And I told him at a certain point, you know, I said, I'm going to leave. Like, I need you to not drink this. Like if we drank wine, if we had other things, it wasn't the same, the same. So, you know, I, I took that stuff away and, you know, at the end, I would say in our 11th year of marriage, like I was commuting to work and he'd be at home with the boys for a few days. And, um, you know, I did that for about a year and a half. And at the end, I came home and he was hiding it. He was hiding like gallon bottles of gin. And and I came home and I smelt it on his breath and I started to look for it. And I found it under a cabinet hidden behind stuff. And I was like, you know, I don't I don't want this. You know, I don't want you to do this. And I said, you know, I'm not happy because there was also things coming to terms within me where I was learning to love myself. You know, I had gone through a yoga and mindfulness program that revolutionized my life and I was certified in it. And for the first time, I was allowed to be selfish in my whole entire life. Sure. I've never been taught that, that I'm allowed to love me and be selfish. Mm So. So as I shifted and started to love myself more, the dynamic in our relationship and me taking care of him and him like showing up for me in certain ways, that started to change. And I didn't need that anymore. And I didn't want the relationship anymore. So I would say um, I would say that in the beginning months of me commuting back and forth, even before the commute back and forth, I had a conversation with him about like, this is not working. I don't want to 
be together anymore. You know what I mean? And he was like, I could see that you're unhappy. I'm unhappy too. We talked until like six in the morning. I thought we were on the same page. And then I wake up the next day and he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to let go of this. You know what I mean? And I'm like, but I do. And I didn't know how to exert my willpower, the fact that I have a choice. Of course. And that's why there's a quote in my book. I'm allowed to leave. I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to have peace. Because here I was in a dynamic situation with someone who was struggling with mental illness. And I loved him deeply. Father of both my kids. First person I have ever been with sexually. You know what I mean? Just wrapped up in all of that. And we're together like... 11 years at the time eventually we made it to year 12 but I'd say that last year was us being together and him knowing that I was unhappy because for the first time I said it out loud right and you all know? the other times you were reluctant to say anything all the other would. times I was like I'm gonna hold on to our marriage you're not loving me right yeah, but I'm gonna hold die. on to it mm-hmm. you know what I mean you, you're talking to me the wrong way but I'm gonna hold on to it I'm losing myself I can't see myself but I'm gonna hold on to it you know what I mean um so I think, you know, that happened and, you know, he just woke up and he was like, no, let's wait till the kids get older. You know, it's too hard. My parents divorced when I was younger and I, it really took a toll on me, you know, and and I just kind of like I didn't know what to do. You know, here I am, this person who is is a Christian going to church and, um, you know, and, and me personally, because of the what, my, what happened with my parents and stuff, I didn't want to perpetuate certain things. And I wanted it to work. To everybody else on the outside, they saw a happy couple because, again... That's always how it is, though. Yeah. Everybody sees they're happy. They don't know what's happening inside the house. Yeah, again, know? too. And with people with mental illness, they're not going to go out and say, yo, I, I try... You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm struggling. so fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> like, this guy is losing his shit. No, yeah. no one, no yeah. one so, talks like so that. So even at know? his funeral... Because like you were saying, the yeah. island thing, it's like... Yeah. There's a lot of judgment, mm-hmm. right? And the last thing you want is your neighbors or your friends to judge you. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. once that happens, then they don't want to see you or hang out with you. You bring bad vibes. Exactly. Exactly. Even with his death, there was a heaviness, you know? So even after he killed himself, like, I had people asking me, how could this happen? He was so happy. He was such, dude, you didn't no live idea. my life. <laughs> you didn't live my life. You know what I mean? You weren't, you weren't in our day-to-day, you know. And his mom would come to visit. Um, and, and I had to, you know, his mom and I and the boys, we spent some time in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, a few weeks. And in that time, this is after his death. This is recently. And in that time, I had to answer some hard questions. You know what I mean? And she, you know, I tried to tell her sometimes, but, you know, I'm a mother. I'm a mother of boys. They can't do no wrong. So it's like, you you know, I explained to her the times that I tried to tell her what was going on, and she just brushed it off like, oh, he's always been to himself. I, I would be like, like, he's isolating himself, you know. There's some things I'm concerned about. And she's just like, oh, well, he's always been that way. And Did you ever talk to her about his suicide threats? No, I never did because I was afraid of his reaction. You know, we were still together. You don't air your dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that people say. And I wish I aired it. I wish I aired it to everyone. But there's a certain pride associated right. with being a Caribbean. There's a certain pride associated in a French community. Um, and we weren't allowed to air our dirty laundry, or at least he didn't allow me to, you know, because he would think of it as me betraying him. And that's yeah. how... Man- 
that's how much manipulation I was under. I didn't realize the levels of psychological abuse or verbal abuse because this wasn't people getting their teeth knocked out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or this wasn't like what my mom went through where she had the scars on her body to prove that she's mm-hmm. been in an abusive relationship. Right. And I think, um, you know, as I it's open... It's to show mental scars. Exactly. So as I open up and I talk about my experience, more and more women come forward and I especially you know I hate to say it but I have a a heart for women of color because people look at us and they're like oh you're strong you can't be an angry black woman because you don't want to be the stereotype you got to be strong 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 and I have sometimes you don't want to be strong sometimes you want your frailty to be your strength and you know that's something I wrote about too like my frailty is my strength and I want my steel to be bent by someone I want someone to come along and see through that exterior and and really see into me and and be there to hold me you know and and those things there was no space for when you're dealing with someone who is going through their own mental illness and their own problems there's no space for you and I was told to put me on a back burner so did you write at all during this process like are you writing to kind of write down what your thoughts are Mm -hmm. or your feelings at all because you said you had stopped writing but when did you pick it up again so 2017, after my son Luca was born, uh, I picked up writing again, and I took poems that I had written. Just you know, I have these these books um, where I write journals and and I write poems throughout the journals. So I mm-hmm. took all those poems that I wrote throughout the journals, and um, you know, I, I put together the first book called Redemption Songs, and it had poems that I had written from when I was 13, and then poems that I ri- wrote maybe a few weeks before I uh, I published that book. Yeah, so it was po- It was just, out of the thousands of poems, I picked like 27 poems or 26 poems that I wanted, that I felt had pinnacle moments in my life that I wanted to to go ahead and put out there to the world so they right. could see maybe... So that was the inspiration for the book. Yeah, so they could see maybe 1% of my psyche. What did your husband think about the, about the um, book at the time? Uh, he he supported in the aspect where his illustration, his the photo on the front cover is a photo that we took while we were in Manhattan on Crosby Street. And I felt like it represented a lot of my upbringing in the city. Like the fact that there's some Nikes in the picture. There's someone who you can't really tell their reflection. They're just moving through. Yeah, it's the motion blur from the it's shot. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's a heart that was written in the concrete. And it just represents a lot of city life because you love this concrete jungle, but there's still just the motions that you're going right. through. And um, he was supportive in that, but there's a reason for why in my... Um, author's note in the book it doesn't say that it doesn't say that I was an amazing wife you know it says she's a mother she's a friend she's a daughter it says all these things because you know we went through a lot of hard times in my writing that and it was because I was doing something for me you know and I didn't know if we were going to make it and somehow we we still pushed through another couple of years later so that was the first moment in which I thought maybe this won't last. And I remember, you know, he had an episode where he thought I had too many shoes and he, he turned my shoes over and spread them through the house. And I used to always clean up after whatever episode he had because I'm taking care of you. But at this point, and I don't know what it is that was triggered in me, but at this point I was just like, yo, I'm not, 
I'm not cleaning up these shoes. They're going to stay here until you see what you've done. And, you know, it was even a point where I invited a friend to the house and she looks at the house and she goes, yo, you're always on point. Like, why is your house so dirty? <laughs> like, and I was like, well, Francois spread these shoes everywhere and I'm not I'm not picking it up. And she was just like she did a hmm. And she was like, well, marriages are hard and I'm not judging anything and just kind of kept it moving. And we, we went out to dinner with the kids. Um, but, you know, eventually he did pick it up. But I was like pregnant with my son, Luca. And this is when I picked up writing again. And it was that moment that I realized, like, when he was going through that manic episode and there were certain certain things said, like, right before I had my son, Luca, I realized I'm not happy anymore. This is not fulfilling me. And unless you change, you know, I'm leaving. I don't care if I'm pregnant, you know. Um, and still, you know, he went through a period of time where things got better. Because I think he knew I was serious, you know, and I said, I don't care what I lose. We have a lot of possessions. Money don't mean nothing. It doesn't mean anything if I don't have happiness, if I don't have peace of mind, if I don't have if I'm not able to come home and not walk on eggshells and, and have the have some type of consistency and grounding. Sure. Yeah. You know, I don't know when you're going to fly off the handle. I don't know when you're going to have an episode, you know. So, you know, that. That was um, that was what happened. And then, you know, we had COVID a few years later. And it's also hard to tell your family, you know, mm -hmm. his family was living in France. They didn't know we're happy, we're sad. They didn't know anything. And anytime we're on a FaceTime call, it's just hello, you know, speaking a little bit of French or he's showing his family the kids. And he was very proud of who we were as a family, a couple. Yeah, we, we were a good couple. We built a lot of things together. And it, it would say, I would say only 30% of the time were things bad. But that 30%, it's like an analogy where it's like if somebody tells you, you know, I'm going to give you some banging uh, brownies. I'm a chocolate lover, so I'm going to use brownies. I'm going to give you some good brownies, but I put a little bit of dog poop in here. 30% like, of it is dog shit. 30% of still it is dog shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you still want this? No, but it was made by Where's the, the best baker. Where's the 30% so I could eat around yeah, the brownie? It was made by the best baker in the world. Like, you, you know, I'm going to give you this brownie and, you know, it's top chef. You know, award-winning chef made it, but it has a little bit of dog doodle. All right, that's okay with you. So that's how <laughs> that's how I would uh, that's how I would describe it. I'm I'm eating, you know, I'm eating the thirty percent of shit because there's so much sweet that comes with it. There's so much chocolate, and there's so much better. beauty. There's yeah. so much beauty. So I'm gonna eat this shit, like you know, and I'm gonna deal with this shit. But then it comes to a point where I have this experience with yoga and mindfulness. Um, where it's like I'm meditating and I'm focusing on myself and I'm realizing a lot of anxiety and a lot of uh, myself um, worth and, and all of this stuff. A lot of this stuff that I'm going through is because I I'm not allowed to hold the space like in our years of marriage. Couldn't cry. Couldn't say I feel couldn't have anyone to hold a space for me. Right. Because I'm dealing with I don't know if he had narcissistic tendencies. I don't know enough about it. Right. I didn't know enough about mental illness to, to know what I was dealing with. I was ill equipped for a war, mm -hmm. you know, a battle with this thing. And all I knew was I love you and my love is going to heal you. Um, and in going through it, you know, I feel like uh, 
I feel like I was ill-equipped for it, didn't really know how to handle it, and, and maybe there were some narcissistic tendencies because I wasn't allowed to feel. You know, I couldn't sit home with the person I was closest to and say, you know, I had a really bad day, I had a rough day, and, and I'd love this, you know, or I'd love that. You know, that was non-existent in the time we were together, and when I went through this experience with yoga and mindfulness, I remember my instructor saying, I know that you're here because your job is paying for it and all of these things, but I want to ask you to become selfish in these next couple of months that you're going to be learning this method. So you went to that because of your work? Yeah. We started a yoga mindfulness program in the city. My best friend, Jamie, she was like, oh, we're doing this thing. She was my best friend at work and my best friend outside of work. Our kids played together. She said, we're doing this thing. I want you to do it with me. And I was like, yeah, I'm on board because like, and she's like, you're a really spiritual person. This is going to bring it to like the next level. And it did. It did. It made meditation a daily practice in my life. It made my prayer life uh, go to a thousand. You know what I mean? It made my stillness, my breath work. It made all of that go to a thousand percent. Um, and I didn't even, you know, there's something I say all the time. You don't know what you need till you get it. And I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know I needed this thing in my, in my life to take a moment and to breathe. I didn't know I needed it until I got it. And after starting to do this stuff, I started to realize how, how unhealthy my marriage was. And I would say then COVID happened and we had each other and we were grateful to have each other. So that paused the process of, of us uh, getting a divorce. And then finally, you know, he had lost his job in that time, which brought great depression on him. You know, it got bad. Um, and finally, you know, I went back to work. It was okay and it was great, right? Because I could placate behaviors. I can watch him. I can take care of him when I'm not at work in person. So as I work remote, it was fine. But then I went back to work and he was by himself And, and you're it, traveling for work. Because yeah. we didn't get to touch up on what you did for work. Like oh. that allowed you to travel and what made you successful in that sense of being able to have all these properties. And yeah, like, what I are you mean, doing for work and sustaining your, your family? And so I was a teacher for years. I taught junior high and high school. And then I became an administrator of special education for the city. Um, and I was able to go into schools and support principals and teachers around special education practices, almost like a, a doctor. You go to a doctor and you say, hey, my leg hurts, and they observe it, and they say, here's what you need to do in order for your leg to feel better. It was the same with students with disabilities or students that were un, uh, undiagnosed. Okay. You go, in, I would go and do observations, or I would observe school buildings. But let's back up a bit. Yeah. After theology, when did you start teaching? I started teaching 2006, 2006, okay. 2007. How yeah. long after you graduated did you start teaching? Um, I graduated theology 04. Okay, so a couple years after. So with with after the graduation What does one do with a theology major? Or <laughs> That's great. Because I'm confused. Like you so, went from theology to, to teaching. I'm kind of so wondering was, like what, 
what so do they me, do with <laughs> so <laughs> so my friend my best friend sarah and i we went to college together but we were weird right we didn't we didn't necessarily drink the kool-aid we were fun we went to the beach we used to play volleyball we we did all these regular things whereas people at our school some of them I don't want to say this because you never know who's watching, but some of them were very different from us, like, you know, but we were still just regular people. So we decided to get an apartment together in Rhode Island because we didn't know what we wanted to do yet. At the time, you know, Sarah, she had gotten a job as a children's pastor and she was working at a local church and also waitressing. And I was working at Abercrombie and Fitch because I had a group of friends that I had met because, you know, I, I went out, I had fun and I, I like to experience new things. So I had a group of friends that I met that were musicians that worked at Abercrombie and they were like, oh, you have a four year degree. You need one to work as a manager. We're looking for a manager and it'll add some like diversity. You should come and work with us as a manager. So that's what I did. Um, so I did that for a few years and in dropping off the drops at the bank, I linked up with some people at the bank because, you know, I talked to people. And um, in dropping off the drops at the bank, some guy was like, hey, I always got this and I never knew why. He was like, you're well spoken. You have a great personality. You should work for the bank. You know, these hours that you're working are crazy because they were crazy. Nobody realizes it. But in retail, sometimes you go in and it's dark outside. You come out, it's dark outside. I was working a six to six shift. And sometimes I would go in and the sun didn't rise yet. And I would come out and the sun already set. So you don't see the sun. There's no windows in retail. <laughs> so no sunlight no windows it's Sounds not like a prison yeah it felt like that sometimes you know and I had a good time and it was like I had a bunch of younger workers college students under me we had great times together it was fun but like you know I needed to get out of that and and I went and I started working for Bank of America after that and I worked for Bank of America for a few years I bought my first house it turned this is me while you're still studying theology right no, this is after theology. I graduated, became a worker at Abercrombie and Fitch. Okay. And excuse me. Because I'm because I'm still trying to figure out the two years. So it's two oh four. You graduate oh yep. six. You start teaching. Yeah, oh six to seven school year. Um, okay. So I. So in the meantime, you're going. You were Abercrombie and Fitch, and then you moved to the bank. Moved to the bank. Gotcha. I was with the bank for a little bit. And then while at the bank, you know, I was dealing with people's money, working with stuff like that. I decided, you know, this is not fulfilling. Um, and while at the bank, I also did missions, you know. And uh, with a, a close friend of mine that went to college with me, we called it uh, missions work. But for me, it was more about building schools and it was more about interacting with the people. So we went back to the Caribbean and we toured Jamaica. And we went to Grants Pen, Jamaica, which is a very, uh, it's considered a rough area. And we went there and we worked with kids and we, we prayed for people and people got healed. Like, that's another thing that was phenomenal. Like, I, I would pray for people and I would feel like their, their uh, knees snapped back into place or something. Sure, or yeah. I'd pray for someone that they could have kids and they'd send me a letter of like them and their kid a year later so it was a phenomenal year so I did that along with working at the bank I used all my vacation time and my weekends or whatever I had and I I did that that whole thing and I traveled in the free time that I had um and then you know at a certain point I said I want to I want to do this full time like what I told you uh after going to Paraguay 
and after going to all these trips and, and seeing the, the vast difference. Who's supporting the mission trips? How are you um, getting them? So most people, they raise funds. For me, I was very prideful, so I used my income to support myself. To go on these missions. Yeah, I used my own income. And how did you relate income. to the missions in the sense, like, how did you meet the, where to go in the missions? The, did, was there a program that you joined? We or? mostly went through, like, church organizations, but mm -hmm. it wasn't only associated with those organizations. Like, for example, we went through a church organization to, to build a school, but the school is for everybody. It's not right. just a private school, <clears throat> you know, or we go through a church organization to feed people. But when you get there, people don't ask, oh, what church are you from? You're just feeding people. You know, you throw a big event, you feed people food, and, and you're just out there loving people and feeding them and taking care of them. You need shoes? Let us buy you shoes. Let us give you this. Because there's a famous saint. His name is called St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's how I try to live my life. I want people to know that I love them. You know, I don't care your sexuality. I don't care about anything. I love you. Jesus loves you. You know, and that's it. And that's one of the, the poems that I wrote as well, because I feel like we try to get on these little nitty gritty details um, of the Bible where it's very religious when we have to go to the foundational thing, which is love, love, mm -hmm. love. Let's just love people. Let's just love people. How about we start there and we take away this Americanized version of Christianity where there are limitations? Because if we look back at Jesus he spoke to people outside of his religion. He spoke to people outside of gender norms because you only spoke to men back then. But he sat at a well and spoke to a Samaritan woman. Samaritans and Jews, there was tremendous racism between the two. And on top of that, it was a woman of the opposite race. Men and women didn't even sit in the same place in the synagogue back then. You know what I mean? So we have to know our history. Remember I talked about knowing the theological history? Yeah. We have to know the history of theology in order to get to this place where we can love people beyond the boundaries of the human mind that puts limitations on God, period. So anyway, so I did that for a while. You know, we're giving shoes to people. We're building schools for people. And we're, we're praying for people. No. Or outside, like Paraguay, Jamaica, these places. Exactly. Gotcha. And then I come back to the U.S. My boss, you know, she at the time, you know, I, I don't want to put this on her, but I experienced a lot of things. I overheard conversations that were see, suit, that were clothed in racism. I was the only person of color at my job in Bank of America in Connecticut. And it had switched managers and the manager that I had was you know, she was racist. She didn't, she, I was a black woman. I was good at what I did. And, and she was just racist to say the least. Um, I didn't know how to deal with racism. Most of my friends were different races and different cultures. I grew up in New York. It was my first time really experiencing overhearing someone talking about me in that nature. Um, and I don't even want to repeat the words or call her out or anything like that. But, you know, I overheard a conversation and I said, I have to get out of here. You know, I, I told HR about it, but they don't do anything, you know. So then I applied for the my Just grandmother. Point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like That's the one thing that HR that, that you have. They're supposed to be for. supposed to be. That's yeah. Wild. So they didn't do anything. Um, and they said, Is, are things better now? They called her, asked her about everything. And then she had she found out that you were complaining about her. 
Yeah, then she had a conversation with me, and she said, are things okay now? And she walked away, and things cooled down a little bit because then she realized, oh, like, I, I overheard that conversation. Um, but but it just wasn't the same, you know? And uh, that was it. And, you know, my grandmother had died. So my grandmother passed away, and I was very close to her. And I went to Jamaica, and I wrote a, a poem about her, and that's one of the poems you'll see in Redemption Songs. And my grandmother passed away, and I met my cousins. And one of my cousins, her name was Trisha. She had been a teaching fellow, and I was like, you know, I went to school for theology. I'd love to be a teacher. Like, maybe I could start an after-school program. I was trying to think of ways. And I said, I have to go back to school for another four years plus two years. And she's like, no, you could go to school uh, through the teaching fellows program. Um, and you can become a fellow and when you become a, a teaching fellow, they pay for your education and the fact that you don't have an educational background, it's for career changers. So I did that and I became a teacher and I remember my first classroom, I, I remember teaching at a high school in a Caribbean neighborhood in Springfield Gardens. I loved it, you know? This is in Connecticut, right? This is, no, this is in New York. New York. Yeah. Because okay, you brought up Connecticut for the bank. So are I was, you going back I was, and forth? So I lived in Rhode Island. From Rhode Island, I moved to Connecticut gotcha. to work with the bank and also to work with my friends that graduated school with me that started a missions organization. Sure. Um, so I worked with them and I helped them. And then from there, I decided to move back home after that because I wanted to go back to New York. New York tiene mi corazón. You know what I mean? It had my heart. So... Um, so I move back to New York after that and and in doing that that's when I applied for the teaching fellows program and I moved back to New York too because I was in Connecticut and I remember when I got the phone call that my grandmother died I was still living in Connecticut and I answered the phone and I was just kind of like I need to go back home I want to be with my family mm -hmm. you know yeah. and that's part of the reason why I moved back too during this whole process, are you going on stage and reciting poems and you're doing anything live? Are you speaking? Yeah. Yeah. So, so is this something you did reoccurring? Like, like yeah. we haven't really touched up on your poetry aspect. We knew you write. But are you doing this live? Are you going on open mics? And how long have you been doing that for? Uh, I've been doing that since college. Since okay. college. I started at my school of theology. Um, you know, I, I wrote a poem while at that school for women at the school that were struggling with eating disorders because you're on stage all the time and you're always having to perform and you're always having to be out there. I noticed that in the dorms, a lot of women struggled with eating disorders and uh, some of those women were close to me. And I wrote a poem and it was called Daughters of Zion, Rise Up and Sing. Sing to your maker, your maker, the king. No more chains to bind your hands. You know, and the chains that bind their hands was the views that people had of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I delivered that. And that was my first time performing one of my poems. Gotcha. I delivered that and it broke the atmosphere. There were like people crying, people being like emotionally healed. And it was an avenue for me to speak with women about being enough. Gotcha. And at that time, I wasn't even liberated myself. You know, I had gotten to, in years later, this marriage where I lost myself, you know. But here I was where... Helping I, others, and you haven't even helped yourself. Exactly, just yet. 
just yet. It's almost like my destiny, it made a way for me eventually, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I want to go back to uh, your dad real quick and that trip Mm -hmm. you took down. I'm kind of curious on, Mm -hmm. was there any repair, like with your dad at all? Was there, did it help your relationship with your dad, like meeting with him many years later and getting his side of the story? How's your relationship with him today? If he's oh still my here, gosh. I'm not even sure if he's he, He's still here. He had some bouts with his health. He has me as his um, next of kin. Um, was it repaired? I'd say to the point where it could be repaired. Because um, people change, right? People change. People change. So you want to assume like maybe so he's I not met the him, same person after the divorce? Like I think, not realizing. I think he's similarly the same person. Still the same guy. Yeah. Um, you know... And unfortunately, you know, I think people change. I met my dad, you know, I introduced him to my son years later. We took that road trip together. I don't know. A few things were healed. Questions were answered. But I don't know that I would see him as dad. So my sister, my younger sister and brother, they have a different dad for me. That's my dad. He, you know, I used to. Your stepfather, you mean? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's my dad. Um, he even still calls me till this day. Like, he, he texted me the other day. He saw a bag of hot cheese popcorn because I used to be my favorite when I was a kid. And he was like, look, every time I see this, like, you know. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. For you sure. know, or we bought our house in Crown Heights, Francois and I. He came by with gifts and stuff, congratulating us. He was like, no one's ever been able to buy something in the neighborhood. Like, you know what I mean? Um, you know, like when I wrote my first book, he actually came to the book opening. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to invite him or tell him to come. My dad always makes excuses. Oh, you didn't call me. You didn't invite me. Dude, you want to have a relationship with your child? You missed, like, so many years of my life. Right. Make an effort. You, you make an effort. You know what I mean? I think about my relationship with my kids. There is no way that I'm going to wait on my child to come to me. I'm going to come to you. I'm going right. to take all the steps towards you because I right. love you so much. True. Um, so, you know, I think that put a toll on us, the fact that I realized I was making all of the effort. And, you, you know, at, at that time, like, you know, I got to know him. It was a great road trip. I, I understood certain things about him. I understood certain things about my mom because they had similar tendencies in the way that they – they cooked and stuff like that. Um, so I was like, okay, being married to a person for so many years. Um, but, you know, I think the abuse that my mom endured, uh, and I didn't even know about it until my adult life, how serious and how deep it was. I think the abuse and what he stole from her, what he stole from us as children, we didn't have it's a father. Yeah, it's irreparable. I love him, you know. If if he passed, I would, you know, throw him his flowers, you know. Uh, but my dad, father, is not someone that you share genes with. My father is is my sister's dad, my stepdad. Mm-hmm. He came to every dance recital with flowers. He came to graduations. You know, he didn't have to. Him and my mom were separated. He was present. Yeah, him and my mom weren't together anymore. This dude was still showing up for me. And, you know, my sister and and I'm just kind of like, dude, like my dad could have did better. My yeah. my actual dad, my biological dad. So, you know, especially when you see somebody that's not your biological father, make all yeah. the effort that a biological yeah. father should. be. Yeah. Making. And I feel like stepdads don't get enough props. Right. We always hear about stepdads who are horrible, who did this and that and were abusive. Nah, my stepdad was stellar. 
he was amazing. He used to take us out. First time I went to the circus was with him. We used to go to the movies and like sneak snacks in. It was the most fun day ever. Uh, go to the park. We did all these crazy, amazing things together. We were allowed to be kids despite all of the trauma that surrounded us, you know, in our neighborhood in general. So like I would say that I would throw him his flowers. That's my dad. And then when it comes to my biological dad, you know, I had a conversation about that and it was a hard conversation and I had to tell him, you know, I, I love you and I'm grateful that I got to know you and you got to meet my kids, but you, you know, you don't make an effort, you know? And sometimes I have, uh, my family say that I have a, a tongue that's a dagger. Sometimes when I tell the truth, I cut straight to the heart. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I speak with him, you know, he knows that. I had that conversation, that tough conversation with him about two years ago because he called me to talk to me about something and he hadn't spoken to me in a year. And I said, don't call me to talk to me about this. You know, you didn't say, hi, how are you doing? You don't know what my life has been. And, you know, I had to say to him, like, you know, I reconcile with you at 21. What have you done since 21? Every time we spend time together, I got to reach out to you. I got to pick you up. I got to take you here. And I understand if we built a relationship already, but we don't even have a relationship and you don't reach out. You know, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah. It's tough. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like um, when you got married and you became a parent, do you feel a lot of the stuff that your, that your dad deal with your mom do you feel like it kind of reflected a little bit of your in your relationship as well i don't know because i was only two right i i didn't get to see a lot of that trauma i think my siblings can speak to that more but what i do know is that i didn't know how not to like there are certain things where my husband was very machismo and it was like certain gender roles and stuff like that and i didn't know how not to take it all on because my mom was both you know, I grew up seeing a very strong woman. She cooked and cleaned. And at the same provided. time, she provided. Right. So I didn't know how not to be both and how to stay, take a step back and, and let him be that role in the house that he thought was the role he had to be. Yeah, the right? role of the man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that that affected us a bit. Uh, but. I don't think so. I think it's all rooted in my attachment style, like that anxious attachment and and the the absent father that I had in my childhood. Maybe this is why I chose to be with this type of person subconsciously, because I think my husband's attachment style was anxious attachment as well. You know, so I think that uh, we gravitated towards each other. We had similar attachment styles and I never developed uh, a secure attachment until recently. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think it's still something daily to have secure attachment. I think daily I have to like, I have to, I have to lay myself down and resurrect again uh, per se, because it's like daily I have to tell my mind, okay, put these things and these thoughts of self and these thoughts of, of, of how you interact with the world to rest, this over-explaining, this, this um, you know, needing this or needing that. Put it to rest. You are enough. Mm -hmm. And it has to be daily mantras, and it has to be ingrained daily in, in meditation and mental health. 
um, and, and reading about yourself. And so I think daily I have to lay down what I have negatively learned for attachment and pick up a healthier type of attachment where I am enough uh, so that I can have something to give to my boys so that they'll know that they're enough no matter what. Mm-hmm. The whole world could reject you, but you're enough because you're here. So, You feel like um, now that, well, since the passing of your, of your husband, now that you're a single mother, how much of the <laughs> comparison is with your mom when your mom was raising you guys by herself? I think, it's, I think there are some similarities and there are some differences, right? I think there are differences because my boys have the foundation of having their dad around, you know, um, for most of their life. You know, mm-hmm. as a family, you know, he did things that a father, he went fishing with them. They chopped firewood together. You know, we, we did things that, you know, a family would do together. And I sheltered them from seeing certain aspects of his mental illness. You know what I mean? Um so and and we we tried not to let them see that and if they did see it they just thought we were arguing they didn't realize dad is having a manic episode you know what i mean and i tried to placate certain behavior so it wouldn't escalate to to be greater than what it was so that being said i think that they have that foundation of having their father uh whereas i didn't have one uh other than my stepfather so they have those memories um And then also, I think it's different, too, because I'm not a mom who's working night shifts as a nurse. My mom worked nights. She went to work. She cooked dinner, go to work. My brothers were watching me. We were latchkey kids, basically. You know, um, it's different from my kids because I was working days. You know, I, I was an educator. So I was working days. So for my kids, it was very different in the aspect they always had me with them. I'm the one watching them at night. We're eating dinner together as a family. I'm putting you to bed. You can talk to me about your feelings, your emotions. That's a difference, too. Listen, we both got Caribbean backgrounds. Caribbean people are very hard around the edges. Maybe yeah. it's rooted in, in you know, in co- co- colonizers, right? It could be rooted anywhere. But those emotions you don't wear on your sleeves. Right. We don't like to show weakness. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's different than my mom because my mom, I barely saw her cry. I didn't hear about the abuse she endured. Very proud woman, you know, Mm -hmm. not wanting to talk about none of that, Mm -hmm. you know. So for me now, I'm different because I'm a highly emotional person. Um, And you like to talk. And I like to talk. So I'm like, Mateo, what's going on? Luca, what's going on? Like, how are you doing? How was your day? How are you guys feeling about this? How should I hold a space for you? Like, I got all this healing that happened, even though I'm not fully healed, right? I got all this healing that happened. So me being a single mom to two boys, um, I show up differently than my Caribbean first generation you know, sure. you know, 100%. I'm yeah. so it's different. Like I couldn't talk about my emotions. I think it wasn't until I was in my teen years that we started saying I love you to each other. Me and my mom, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think my boys have a different parent, but I would say I see tendencies of my mom. Like we talked about briefly that emotional disturbance. When I get upset, I have to go for a walk because I'm going to become like my mother. My mother would oftentimes when she got upset, start yelling and start shouting and stuff. And I think it's because of emotionally what she went through being married to my dad and having all that abuse. If something's stressful, she starts to yell and stuff. So 
I notice tendencies of that. Am I as bad? No. But I notice things of that to the point where uh, the other day even, you know, I came home because I I travel to New York. I have some, some health issues. So I travel back and forth to New York. And I came home from New York. And the house was like a mess. The ch- kids have a chore chart. And I told my son, Mateo, I said, I'm really mad right now. What's happening? So I'm going to go for a walk <laughs> and come back because I don't want to start. spotless when he Yeah, yeah, there. it was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> and he called me on the phone and he said, listen, I know you're really upset right now. Did you get enough time to take a break? And, and I, <laughs> I hung up the phone with him. And I, I said to myself, look at my Jamaican, Cuban, Italian, French son knowing how to voice emotions and words after having such a, a panel of my machismo around him right (laughs) so so I said to him I said yeah I think I think my walk was good I'm coming back do you guys know what you had to do he said we did everything we were supposed to do (laughs) that chore list has been checked check (laughs) like you know he said we did everything we were supposed to do and I was just doing like a check-in to see if you're ready to come back now (laughs) like you know I don't even know if it's right. You know, maybe there are going to be people watching like, oh, you went for a walk that's actually escaping. Or I don't know the psychological terms, but I know me. Right. And I know that if I stay there and I start to look through the house and see you didn't do this, didn't do that. You know, my mom being a Caribbean, she start yelling at you right away. Why you never do the dishes? Oh, this look like this. Me Man, come can on. you do the rest of the podcast in that, ac- in that accent? <laughs> me come on from work where I work all morning and, and me come home, look upon this. I love all it. All right, what a ass clad. Like, you know what I mean? I love it. Oh, my and, gosh. And this is what I grow up with, right? So I don't want to give that to them. I don't know if I could ever take anybody yeah. seriously mad at me in that accent. I would die. It's like somebody that has a British accent just going yeah. off. I'm like, bro, I'm sorry. This is common. <laughs> I'm laughing till I die. Yeah. So, so like she she comes home from work because she worked night shifts, right? So it's like it has to be spotless. My brother Nate, I remember him cooking curry chicken and white rice. He learned how to cook from a young age. He was 13, taking care of me. His, his food's probably banging now. On point. On point. <laughs> On point. So you know. So anyway, she come home from work, start yelling, all of this stuff. There's no hugs. I missed you. How was your day? How did you sleep? These are the things I do with my kids that I didn't grow up having, but she didn't know any better, right? She didn't know any better. She did the best she could. She had the capacity to give us a better life by bringing us to Long Island, exposing us to better school systems and exposing us to a better life that way. And that's what she did. She did the best she knew how to do as a first generation American, like as a Caribbean woman moving from Jamaica, embracing first generation American children. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I I try to as a single parent do differently. Am I perfect? No. You know, my upbringing is going to come out of my seams because we are who we were raised by, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and you're a product of your environment, too, sometimes. So yeah. even even mm-hmm. sometimes you could be raised by a great parent, but your environment is not allowing you to be exactly. that great, you know, exactly. depending on you know, your circumstances. Exactly. So let's get to the second book. The second book comes after post, post-suicide? Uh, yeah, the second book is post-suicide. Okay, so let, let's, let's, I mean, I don't know how much of this you want to talk about and whatever you're comfortable mm-hmm. saying. You can mm-hmm. just stop if you don't want to talk about it. But after the suicide, um, I'm assuming you found out. Um, you said he didn't leave anything behind, no note, no nothing like that. So no. I'm assuming when you found out, it was obviously a crushing blow. But how does that affect where you are and, and why did you want to move to just get away from, from, 
from that whole um, life in a way? Like, yeah, kinda I'd say start over. I'd say post suicide. There's a few events that happen. Um, post suicide, you know, me and my boys, we were in New York, and my boys finished up school in New York because I couldn't. I was still working. I was still working as an administrator at the Department of Ed. And I had to go to work. I couldn't do this commute anymore from Pennsylvania to to New York. So post-suicide, we are in New York. They're going to school, finishing up the three months they have left the school, going to counseling. And I felt like I was going crazy. Like, you know. Because you're still in the house. Yeah, no, it's not even the house he committed suicide at. Uh, we had two houses. He committed suicide at our Pennsylvania house. He gotcha. hung, okay. He hung himself in the garage. And the poem, a poem that I have in my new book is "Ropes Don't Hang." You know what I mean? It, it's mm. called "In My Dreams I Find You." You know, um, <clears throat> God, giving me chills, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could, I could even recite it for you. But um, you know. I wrote this poem and I had this experience um, and I decided to move because of the fact that I couldn't take New York. It was too fast and bustling for my mind that clearly needed rest. And that's okay, all yeah. Makes sense. that that's all that I can say. A lot of things happened. I, I lost relationships and that was a pinnacle turning point. Um, I lost a major relationship. I lost my spiritual mom as well as that relationship. Um, she had she had died in her sleep. No one knows what happened. She just went to sleep one night and just didn't wake up. up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, all these things, all these losses in such a short period of time, I want to say like four months lost all these things, things that were so important to me. Um, and then, you know, I, I sat back and I said, I can't raise my kids here in the city. We got drug dealers on the corner in a good neighborhood even. You know, we got this, we got that. So I looked up three places where we'd like to move. I sat and talked about it with the boys. And they were like, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's visit those places. That's what we did. And, again, we went to Charlotte. It felt grounding um we sometimes would just stay home and play board games like you know what i mean yeah yeah um you know we have a swimming pool in the back we we go for a swim you know uh just take the dog for a walk go on hikes look at the deers like something slow so what are you doing for work though <laughs> um for work i was working remotely i was working remotely and then i decided to retire so you know, in that transition time, I worked remotely for a little bit. And get this, like, it's not just chaotic in my life, people dying and leaving. And it's also chaotic in my work life, too. We had a new mayor. <laughs> so okay. my husband dies. And while I'm taking time to mourn my husband, we have a reorganization of my job. And they place me in a different district, a different school district than the district I had been supporting for like five years. So now I have to learn these new principles, their names. They have to learn to trust me again. My other principles, the trust was already built because I'm in their face every day doing school visits and loving them. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, that's another pinnacle thing that happened. So I was working remote at the time uh, because of some health issues. So I'm working remote and, uh, you know, that's how I was able to relocate, but while still working and everything. Okay, mm -hmm. okay so you retired, and then what? 
What do you do I, for work now? <laughs> like, are, so, you, are you sitting on a nice pension or something? I, I'm good. So I retired, you know, um, I had, you know, we sold the Pennsylvania house that he killed himself in. I sold the Brooklyn house. So we had a little bit left over. And what I did was I bought the Charlotte house that we currently live in. And I bought two investment properties in South Carolina because I've always been an investor ever since my days at Bank of America. Like, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like an entrepreneurship. So, yeah, yeah. So I bought my first house when I was 21, you know, uh, in Rhode Island. So later on, my, my husband and I bought properties together. But the paperwork side of it and stuff, like, I knew a lot about. So I took that money that I got from the Brooklyn house and the Pennsylvania house and I invested it by buying a house for me and the boys where we live and also by buying two investment properties. And we started uh, a company called Yaida International Homes. And uh, what it is, is Yaida Yaida International, it's Yiddish, it's Yiddish for the Lord provides. Yeah. So, um, so we started that company because I felt like God provided these means and he's going to make a way for me to make my way here in the South. And so I started that company and I didn't even say this, but I had opened a school in Pennsylvania that I had to give back to the, the other two founders. And it was hard for me to do that because you know, uh, I'd always wanted to open a school with my values, my thoughts and everything like that. So I opened that school. I gave it back to the founders, you know, right when we moved to North Carolina. I then retired and then I started this business and invested in these two rental properties. Um, and, and that's it. What I what I started doing is writing again. OK, writing again. Um, so all the all the poetry in the strength to love is all new, nothing from the past. Like all the poetry song. in the strength to love is all written in the year that I was in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And there's more poetry. I only put 19 poems in there, and the rest, half of the book is broken up into the micro poems that I wrote in the 40 day fast that I did, and it's 40 days of healing. That's what I call it. Uh, 40 days of healing and affirmation. And then the other half of the book is 19 poems that I wrote in the year that I was in Charlotte trying to get over just all the losses that I had, you know? Mm-hmm. Understood. Mm-hmm. Um, do you care to share uh, what health issues that kept you home? Uh, yeah. So, so basically uh, in November of 2022, they found a lump in my breast And, uh, you know, at the time they said we found a lump, but maybe it's nothing. And, you know, it's probably nothing. Let's just, you know, check back in six months. By six months later, when I went back, it was an aggressive triple negative form of breast cancer. And and, um, you know, triple negative. I don't know. the Triple uh, negative means that some. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Triple negative means that some forms of breast cancer, they respond to hormone therapy. Uh, Some forms of breast cancer respond to chemotherapy. This triple negative form is aggressive and people who have it, they they don't have success rates with the responses. Right. So if this breast cancer has spread throughout my whole body and we didn't catch it in stage two, it would be very little they could do to save me. So um, I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful for another life of my nine lives. Like, you know what I mean? You're like a cat. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally like a cat because another reason why I was at home, too, is because um, I was hit by a car. I was hit by a car at 65 miles an hour while commuting to work one day. 
and it hit me and um i mean the car hit me from behind and a tractor trailer hit me on the other side and my car looked like a sardine can and i walked away with like a black eye and then i have a a pinched nerve in my back so because of that you know, I have some nerve issues uh, when walking. And in most schools that you visit, some schools are older buildings. They don't have elevators. So you got to go up to the fifth, sixth floor just walking. So that that took a toll on me. So, you know, with my job, I applied for, for this retirement based upon these issues. In addition, what I also knew was going on in the background is that, you know, I had this breast cancer diagnosis. So I had twofold things going on. And and part of me was like, you know, this condition, you know, even though breast cancer kind of outweighs it, this condition right here, like it prevents me from doing my job. So this is what I'm going to present before them, you know. Gotcha. Um, and that's what I did. And, you know, we went back six months later. They found it was very aggressive. So I couldn't use my natural holistic methods that I had always used. Like I was plant-based for like a good portion of time, plant-based slash pescatarian for about seven years of my life, right? Wow, okay. So I was plant- No meat. Uh, pescatarian, you know, fish is meat. Uh, depending I mean, on, like you know. Meat, like beef. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Poultry, no, 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 no poultry, I, no beef. I, yeah, I try to cut all those things out, try to cut many things out. So, you're not, I, Are you still pescatarian? No, I'm not. So you're so, enjoying your meats now? Yeah, enjoying my meats. <laughs> so, so some now, good steaks yeah, out there. I know, I know. My, no good fish, <laughs> so my, my doctor put me on a ketogenic diet, which is interesting because with the absence of sugar, um, with the absence of sugar, cancer can't thrive. And I didn't know that. And people that, that fast. Is that a general thing for cancer or is it, is it a breast cancer thing? It's sugar. a general thing for cancer, and there are studies out there that fucking, show it. Why does all our food have fucking sugar in it? It does. It's it like does. It's hard for cancer. me. It's hard. It's so hard for me. And being a Caribbean person, man, you make tea in Jamaica, man. It has so much sugar. <laughs> like you ever have like tea with half milk and sugar and just Look, all this my wife sweetness. Put sugar in her tea. I'm like, that's like putting sugar in water. I can't. Yeah, I, yeah. Have, <laughs> I have my tea straight. Like whatever yeah. flavor it is. Everything. I'll take it. Everything I have straight now. Um, you know, so Except I had to. Coffee. I need sugar in my coffee. Yeah, still. so I used to have black coffee. So I had to cut coffee out because coffee's not good. It causes cystic breasts and all these different things. So I cut out coffee and, um, you know, I cut out sugar, which is hard. Like, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm visiting my family here in Miami, <laughs> and, and I have had sugar. Yeah, I have had sugar on this, this trip. So, you Are know. Are you on chemo? I am on chemo. I'm currently undergoing chemo. And so I, the triple negative we were talking about before that mm-hmm. might work with chemo, might not work. Yours happens to it be works. able to work. So here's chemo. my ninth life, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> here's another life, you know, and I spoke about that car accident. That was a crazy situation. I survived. I had another car accident before that that I survived. Me and my son almost died in the hospital. Like, God has just been wait, 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 so wait, wait. Let's go good back to, to that me. one. What do you mean? Well, you had All another right. ar- so, accident. So I'm at a stoplight. I'm stopped. I'm not moving. And someone who's on drugs hits my car and me and my son, my son, who I was carrying at the time, Luca, he ended up being born at 32 weeks prematurely. And I almost died because I'm an O negative blood type. I can't have other people's blood, but I can give blood to everyone. And Luca's blood was mixing in with my blood. So they almost lost me because I was being poisoned. That's um, crazy Khalifa. So, <laughs> so like you really are a cat with nine <laughs> lives. <laughs> so so here I am and I'm like I'm like, oh my God. So like 
And I had a dream about it. I told we didn't even get into my dreams. I had to dream about it before I was even pregnant with Luke. And I'm like, what does this dream mean? So I have these dreams that feel like deja vu events, but I don't know what the dreams mean when I have them. Are right? they vivid dreams? They're vivid. They're in color. I feel like I'm there. I feel like I can touch it. It's tangible. It's tangible. It's like I even have dream in a way. Yeah, I even have smell associated with it. I can smell certain things. So, you know, I had this dream and that's how I got his name Luca because before I got pregnant with Luca, I had this dream and I saw him being lifted up just as they lifted him up when they took him from my belly. I had a C-section and God said to me in the dream, he said, you'll name him Luca, which means God's light. So that's what so, that means. I didn't know that. Yeah. Luca means God's light and Mateo means God's gift. So so I named him Luca and he was born the same year Francois's grandfather died. So his middle name means hammer. And um, I named him Marcel because Francois's grandfather's name was Marcel, which is hammer. Gotcha. OK, mm-hmm. so throughout this whole thing, post suicide breast cancer all this who's your major support who's supporting you here? elizabeth you so my spiritual mom elizabeth and she's the one who died in her sleep uh, how so, many years after i mean how many months or years after oh my god elizabeth died in april so it was the anniversary april this year yeah it was the anniversary of my husband's death right wow she's supporting me like anything i can call her at three in the morning like and i'm like yo i'm i'm going through it today and she's there. And where'd you meet Elizabeth? How, at what point so, did she enter your life? So I met Elizabeth through my accountant. His name is Seth. Seth was a good friend of mine that I met shortly after I graduated college. I was pursuing acting. <laughs> really? Yeah. Interesting. So, I, so, so I met, not only are you a cat of nine yeah. lives, you literally had nine different lives. I you, know. You taught. You did I theology. Know. You did mission work. You wanted to be an actress. Yeah. So I was pursuing acting. You, you want to be an astronaut next or something? Maybe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I was pursuing acting because New York is the best place to do that, right? New York and California. I met Seth. We were taking classes with a gentleman called Larry Moss. And I met Seth and I ended up going to William Esper studio. But Seth and I, we were both very spiritual. He's done his degrees in theology and he has a doctorate in it today. And we also were on the same page with talking about money and investments and stuff. So that's why he's my accountant today. Um, Long story short, you know, I met him through that and he introduced me to Elizabeth because he said, you guys are kind of, you're both like seers. Remember I told you about Raquel when I was younger and she always saw something in me. So Seth saw it in me. Elizabeth was very similar um, and she was very spiritual. So I would call her and I would pray about things with her or I would call her and just vent to her. She was a spiritual mom in the aspect where she brought that emotional aspect that I, I didn't really have that type of relationship with my mom where I could tell her everything and have it not be used in an argument later on. Like, you know what I mean? That fuel, you know, it was just a neutral person. So I shared a lot of my life with her and she helped me through a lot of things. And one day she was gone and it was abrupt, just like Francois's death was abrupt, just like um, uh, losing certain things that I lost in the past year was just abrupt. Overnight, things were gone and it was abrupt yet again. And here am I holding the bag. Right. Um, So, you know, I sat and I just started writing. I started writing and I started taking things from my journal like um, I want to quote something because one night 
when I was sleeping in, in North Carolina, you know, I was carrying all this stuff, never cried, not really processing it well. I was sleeping and I had a dream about Francois and he said, he held me to his chest and he said, don't worry, Kalitha, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and I was just weeping and crying, just crying. And I was just like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We couldn't make it. Like, I'm sorry. We couldn't make That's it. I'm sorry. Crazy. And I'm crying. And I wake up from that dream and bro, I mean, it looked like I took a bucket of water and poured it on my pillow. So my so your whole grief process happened in that dream. In that dream, right? So my and I, I was wiping the tears from my eyes and my body was shaking. I woke up because I was doing this weeping, right? So I wake up and I write the poem in my dreams. I will let my sleep bear the tears. I cannot cry during the day. I will let its pools be an aroma to heaven. I'll see you again one day. We'll both be healed, free, and whole. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that because I saw him in my dreams. I wrote that because my sleep, beard, tears. I couldn't cry during the day. I got to be strong for my boys. I got to be a strong woman. Elizabeth just died. I have nobody else to, to pour this onto. I need to let my sleep bear these tears. You know what I mean? Because society has told me as a black woman, you can't feel or else you're going to be the stereotypical angry black woman. So you cannot be frail. You cannot be fragile. You are strong. And yet, thank you, but no thank you. Can I please be weak in this moment? Mm -hmm. um, you know. Because through weakness gets you know, get great strength. Yeah. You know, that's how heals wounded. Yeah. You come back stronger. And through transparency. So, you know. I've had family members, you know, mention like I get I get really vulnerable in my poems and I, I tell my business, you know, I've had family members mention like um, their family members like on my dad's side mention like, oh, like you, you talk about like a lot of things you shouldn't like air your dirty laundry like but I don't feel that way anymore ever since everything that happened with Francois. I wish I talked more to people about some of the episodes he had. And anyone I did open up to, they felt like I should leave right away. I'm going to be transparent. And I think that I wasn't ready to leave because I was still trying to show up for him because I loved him. Right. But um, but, you know, I, I'm done with that energy. This book is about me. And if someone thinks it's too little, or it's not enough or whatever, that's on them. They can buy another book. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is about me. It's about my experience and hopefully me making a space to be honest and me making a space to be transparent will hold a space for someone else. You know? So what's next? Ah, what's next? What do you next? have happening? Like, how long do you have chemo for? Like, how long does that? That's a great question. So I have seven more sessions of chemo. I'm going to fly from here and I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to do my your flight, by the way. My flight is, is it at, delayed? It's at 3.45. Not sure if it's delayed. 3.45? Mm -hmm. Man, we got to wrap this up soon. It's almost 1. Ah, I'll be okay. I'm not going to get to the airport till like 2, probably. Okay. <laughs> I don't have anything with me. I just, I fly light. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to fly to, I'm going to fly to New York, do another session of chemo. I have a long road ahead of me, right? So they're requiring a double mastectomy. I'm still processing all of that. This is, you know, a part of my body. I give life. I have you know, pleasure through it, give life through it, meaning I breastfed my boys. And I'm going to lose that because it's now forming something that could possibly take my life. 
So it's heavy for me in that sense. You know what I mean? And chemotherapy, I did a round called AC and it was torturous. I had shortness of breath. I have a staircase in my house, beautiful staircase. I couldn't walk up the stairs without somebody helping me. Now, I want to paint this picture for you. I'm a runner. I have been since I was in high school. And for me to not be able to walk upstairs, it took a mental toll on me. It was like, and I don't like to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so that was a big thing for me. Um so, you know, I went through that first round. The second round is is a little bit lighter, but it still takes a toll a little bit sometimes because I, I haven't been able to fully run like five miles. I've, you know, gained a little bit of weight. I lost a lot of weight after Francois's death, and then I gained almost all of it back. Um, but I don't care. I am who I am and whatever. People love me because of me. Um, but but all of that just to say, like, you know, I'm almost done with my seven sessions after that. I'm going to have a surgery, the first surgery in my double mastectomy. And then after that, I'm going to do radiation. And then six months after that, a reconstructive surgery. That's what they have on the plan for me. So um, is that like 100% guaranteed success rate? So it is, I think they said 76%. And right What's now. What's the worst case scenario? It comes back? Worst case scenario, it comes back. Yeah. Okay. Worst case scenario, it comes back. But can it be, can something that you are treating comes back? Can it, obviously it should be able to be treated again, right? Or does it come back like more aggressive? No, it, it can be treated again. It can be treated again. Um, but by taking off the breast, um, I, I considered as well getting a hysterectomy because if you want to be surefire that you're not going to get any type of. I don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, okay, you, the, yeah. the one for when they removed the double breast was called mastectomy. And a mastectomy. You another mastectomy yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> mastectomy, and then there's also a hysterectomy where yes. they remove your uterus and stuff. So it, I would probably uh, do both of those in order to be in a place where I felt like nothing's going to come back. Um, women are mostly prone to, um, you know, they're prone to cancer, um, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, um, and breast cancer. You know what I mean? And I wrote a, a, a poem in my book about going through breast cancer and being a survivor of that, right? Because mm-hmm. we have to see those things that are not yet as though they are. So I wrote a poem in my book about that. And, you know, I feel like, a lot of people don't talk about it. We have a month, the month of October, actually, what we're going into, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And people don't talk about their fight with breast cancer. Dude, I think these women that go through this battle, they are soldiers and warriors. Because if I'm telling you right now, I had shortness of breath, couldn't walk upstairs, like, and then you lose your hair. Like, I had short hair anyway, so I didn't really care. You lose your hair. My nails right now are, are black. Like, you have all these things that happen in your body because you're... That's a product of the Chemotherapy, chemo? yeah. You have Why all these... Why does that happen? Uh, because it's killing good cells as well as bad cells. And in the process of killing the good, the bad cells, it kills the good one, and your body has these reactions to it. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have to say I never knew what this experience would be like, and, and maybe I'm experiencing it so that I can snatch other people out of a negative mentality that may be going through it. Because 
you know, in going through this process, you get partnered up with people sometimes that are there to encourage you. And I, I think 90% of the time I end up encouraging them like, yo, you got this. We're good. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you're still here. What are you going to do with your day that you got given today? What are you going to do? To What are you going to produce? Because, you know, cancer doesn't have to be the thing that takes you. We don't know the day or the hour that's going to be our last day or hour. It doesn't have to be breast cancer. You know what I mean? So what are you going to do with your day? What is the intention you set forth? You know? And I think in people hearing that, it's not like this thing of doom. I think people are anxious about the future, so there's always doom associated with it. But there's not a thing of doom. You know, there's not a thing of doom if you just take it one day at a time. Gotcha. So you want to have... Any closing thoughts you want to say? Would you, would you like to read a passage from one of your books? Yeah, actually, I, I know. I'll, I'll talk yeah, about. they're both here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think from the strength to love, I think I want to talk about just ending with chemotherapy and the whole thing on breast cancer, you know, sure. and fighting yeah. isn't new. The mic so, is love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to say it from, from just my mind. Just pull the mic a little closer for that. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak it from my mind. Right. Um, Because I've memorized it. I stepped outside myself, my body a shield, watching the words you call bullets. Watch it. Sorry. Let me start again. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's a bad start. Um, I stepped outside myself, my body a shield, watching the bullets you call words penetrate my skin one by one. My thick mane cut, strength removed. Torture called the Red Devil, aka, aka chemotherapy, injected through my veins. I wish I could say this was new, but I fell from my mother's womb with two cast iron fists and a hole in my heart. Fighting isn't new. No, fighting isn't new. Given a sword to wield called a slick tongue, when I learned to speak, I cut straight to the heart. The alternative was to weep. I put up force fields and shields of protection, my body a map leading to my scars, my mind a battlefield needing to be cleansed, love without borders, a myth spoken of in the middle of the night, those who left simply casualties of war that paved the way for where I truly belong, capsized by my destiny, I learned to war, I said I learned to war. Now hear my cry. It is the very evidence that I exist. My words are mist sticking to your skin. Death passed over my open grave and I stepped out victorious, seeking who I could save. My word and my story, the very axe that breaks each and every chain, one by one by one. An army is forged of cast iron fists called survivors. We are survivors. We are survivors. Our weakness leading to our liberation. We sing we are survivors. Our stories setting others free. We sing we are survivors. We march into victory because we are survivors and fighting isn't new. Wow. Powerful words. Thank you. Very powerful words. That was beautiful. Thank you. And that's from your book. And that is from my book, The Strength wow. to Love. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing me those books. I'll definitely mm-hmm. take a yeah. minute to read them because yeah. I got them yesterday, I think it was. Yeah, so yeah. Sorry about the to, delay. I don't even know what a them. first set is that I sent you. Well, you said the got, first set? Yeah, somebody got blessed with it. I don't know. Uh, well, hopefully, <laughs> I don't know. hopefully it went to the right people and then they're <laughs> going to use it. I know. I know. It's great. It's well, great. I, honestly, Kalita, I, I appreciate you coming on here and, you know, speaking yeah. your heart out. And, yeah. you know, it's... You're a strong individual. You've gone through a lot, and hopefully, you can set some, you know, some 
people can relate and see the yeah. courage that you've gone through and yeah. find strength in that as well and also through your through your poetry Yeah. Um, we can do hard things, you know. Yeah, That's absolutely. my whole motto. As human beings, we don't think we can do things until they come. Mm -hmm. And then you have to live life and, and go through hard things. We can do hard things. Yeah. We're survivors. Absolutely. It's in our nature. We can know? endure. Yeah. Resilient, especially yeah. as islanders. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You go through something. It could be traumatic AF, right? You go through it. You could see somebody shot in front of you. You go through it. You pick yourself up and you keep it moving. That is our foundation. We are fighters. Mm -hmm. That is our foundation of the people who were on the islands before colonizers brought Africans there. That is our foundation now. Yeah. We are survivors. That's what. You know? That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again. I, I appreciate you coming down here and. Um, We got to wrap this up so that we can get you. Yeah, to I know. I know. You got to lunch, too. So I know. I know. I know. Food. Yeah, of um, course. Thank you again. And, thank you. Um, have a safe trip back and continue to write, continue to speak. Yeah. Free talk can go places, you know. And yeah. um, if you if you people want to watch and follow, it's what's the Instagram handle for it? Uh, it's free talk BK. Free talk. There's no hyphen. There's no dot. Nothing. No, you just free type in free BK. talk BK. It's and a, you can follow your work. Yeah. You can, yeah. Because yeah. I see your you. You're um, often on stage. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. know if this is recent, but you're it's you recent. Seem to be really Every out there time I go it. for my treatment, I try to hit the stage. I try to get out there in the city because being back in New York, I'm trying to get back to my roots. And it, it's recent since my, my diagnosis that I've been just hitting the stage a lot more. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Keep fighting. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Goodbye, Thank everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Oliver Stone Podcast, Safe Journeys Across the Stars.